Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Sechiru Mitzvah. And we are your hosts. We're in the month of May, which is Skin Cancer Awareness Month. Today, we will be speaking with Professor Peter Sawyer on the topics of melanoma detection and diagnostics, artificial intelligence in melanoma, and teledermatology and teledermoscopy. But first... On the next edition of EADV Live, the EADV will be hosting a webcast, Integration of Digital Photographs in Mohs Micrographic Surgery, with Dr. Kai Munte. Join us on the 19th of May, starting at 2 p.m. European time, to delve deeper into this topic. You can tune in through EADV's Facebook Live and YouTube, and for EADV members, it is also available through the EADV eLearning platform. And... The EADV Symposium has ended, and it's already time to think about EADV's 30th Congress happening this fall. It's already time to submit your abstracts. Though the deadline was originally scheduled for today, the scientific committee has granted an extension and invites authors to submit their abstracts for the chance to present your research to a global audience. Make sure to submit your research by 18 May 2021. For more information, go to www.edvcongress2021.org. And now... Professor Peter Sawyer is the inaugural chair in dermatology at the University of Queensland and director of the Princess Alexandra Hospital Dermatology Department in Brisbane, Australia. In 2007, he moved to Australia from Austria, where he worked for more than two decades at the Medical University Graz. His expertise is in preventative dermato-oncology and dermatologic imaging. He leads the Australian Centre of Excellence in Melanoma Imaging and Diagnosis, a research consortium between the University of Queensland, the University of Sydney, and Monash University in Melbourne. Recently, he became Fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Services. Professor Sawyer, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, guys. It was really my, my pleasure, and I'm being an, a European and being a member of the European Union myself in Austrian, I'm very, very happy to, to be interviewed by the EADV. It's really my pleasure. Welcome, Professor Sawyer. Could you tell us about your motivation to expand the concept and applications of teledermatology and teledermoscopy and better prevent, predict and detect skin cancer and melanoma? I started to, to work on uh, teledermatology in, in the last century. So our first publication on this topic was actually, if I recall correctly, in 1999, with images which we shared between uh, Van Graz, Austria, and L'Aquila in, in, in Italy. And uh, we at the very beginning already used uh, teledermatology images. And following on from this, we had a, a kind of a decades-long interest in uh, in telemedicine, teledermatology. And uh, I have personally very, very strong feeling that uh, telemedicine, telemedicine opens the door to an equitable access to, uh, to dermatologic knowledge. Now, your research also includes mobile teledermoscopy. What is exactly mobile teledermoscopy? I was speaking about my background in, in, in teledermatology, but actually 
even longer I have an interest in demoscopy and basically our interest in demoscopy started in in, in the mid 80s and also around the the end 90s and early 20s uh, I was involved with the foundation of the International Demoscopy uh, Society and we had a lot of consensus meetings and so on and basically mobile teledemoscopy is the combination of demoscopic images with mobile phones yeah and if I can just uh, explain this a little bit when we started of course we didn't have yet smartphones and we had some handheld dermatoscope and we did put the the, the mobile phones on, on on top of it, right? And we were making some jokes. This is a very primitive approach. But then in the upcoming years, companies and quite a few companies are producing handheld uh, sort of uh, actually attachments for for the various types of mobile phones for for Android, but also for uh, for the iPhone. So they are probably now in the market. 10, 15 different devices, which you basically put uh, with a with a clip on a mobile phone, and then you get with a mobile phone a demoscopic image. And when we, you send them this around, then this we call mobile teledemoscopy. At the end of the day, it's a, it's an, a word creation of something which you also can call mobile mobile teledermatology with demoscopic images. And are we seeing a lot of doctors using this yet? There are two different approaches here. We have uh, started working on what we call consumer mobile teledemoscopy. And the concept was always this empowerment of, uh, of our patients, you know, of our patients, which basically are consumer, citizen, clients, you know, persons, however mm -hmm. you call it. I mean, the word, the word patient alone in, implies obviously a little bit this paternalistic approach to medicine, yeah? which I think it's, it's, it's fine, but uh, we think consumer mobile teledemoscopy is that people who have many moles, who obviously have a high risk of melanoma, who see the doctor once a year, that in between, they basically use their mobile phones, they or their partner, and basically with these attachments provide mobile images, which then will be seen by their dermatologist. Having said this, actually quite a few dermatologists are using these mobile uh, dermoscopes yeah, uh, for their own use instead of more expensive photographic equipment. They prefer to use uh, their own mobile phone with, a, with an attachment. So it is used by dermatologists, by doctors, but also by, by consumers, if this makes sense. So how has the role of virtual melanoma checks been evolving during this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, it is actually a quite an interesting topic because during the pandemic, of course, uh, quite a few doctors have been very, very afraid and quite rightly so that they get infected. And... Uh, even colleagues who didn't really like the concept of teledermatology are starting to use um, teledermatology, it means for consultations uh, with their patients. This works actually pretty good for conventional dermatology. And it works to a certain degree also obviously for virtual melanoma checks, but there are then two ways for virtual melanoma check. You make a photo with 
your mobile phone of a lesion of concern which you have on your body or on the or on, on your partner, because basically you will not be able to do images on your back or on some body sites, right? And then you, we call it mobile teledermatology if it's just a conventional uh, a smartphone photo of a lesion and mobile teledermoscopy when you have this kind of mobile attachment. Now the thing is this, some dermatologists feel quite comfortable with doing the reporting quite a few don't feel comfortable for a variety of reasons. And um, the medical legal angst yeah, is a big factor here. Yeah? Based on our research, we know that in most cases, the image quality is actually pretty good. Right? It's pretty good and it allows you a quite good diagnosis. Having said this, even if you see a patient face to face, you don't um, always have the correct diagnosis. But then you, you speak around, you know what I mean, and you do an excision and whatever you, you do. In the mobile set, in the telehealth setting, of course, you are somehow forced to make a diagnosis and management decision. And I think here, dermatologists in general, we are basically a little bit afraid about this because we are not, used to do this. Dermatologists are very good in diagnosing skin lesion, in dealing with patients face to face. But when we do this in a virtual setting, there's a lot of, um, we don't yet have this sort of cultural background that we do then written reports, like for example, radiologists are constantly doing. Mm-hmm. But having said this, COVID is obviously working in favor for telemedicine, not just in dermatology. You say the academic world is a little nervous about this, but in in general, let's talk about patient confidentiality and privacy. Is this something that's going to need to be addressed? I think this is, of course, a very, very important issue, and this is completely independent from uh, from all these, uh, um, how confident the dermatologist feels to do this. This is completely independent. And I think what one of the issues is that even in dermatology clinics nowadays, our registrars or how you would call it residents or trainees, depending now if you are using British English or English English, it's uh, our youngsters are very often taking photos from patients with their mobile phones, right? And then of course, the question from the patient is, what has happened with these photos, yeah? And we re- always reassure them the photos will then be uploaded, obviously immediately into, into the electric, electric, electronic medical record and the, the mobile phone photos will be destroyed. But still there is um, this confidentiality issue which plays a major role here. And, and I think this will, if addressed in, in the form of the patient consent, yeah? And, uh, of course, I don't know to which extent this will be already done in all the departments and in all the clinics, but at the end of the day, the patient consent, consent should make it explicit what this process involves. And, um, and actually, by the way, what is happening also now more and more, that patients are coming to us with a rash and say, look, doctor, three days ago, it was much more, and then they show you the mobile phone how the rash looked three days ago. And, uh, but again, 
privacy image storage is a major issue and as part of our internal research project we we are now developing a framework for uh, for privacy of dermatologic images uh, in uh, as part of our one of our bigger pro projects and we realize that this is not just an issue of, of lawyers but it's an issue of policymakers of consumer consumer representatives it's a it's a big it's a big topic right Right. We're not just talking about having the image and being able to send it to whomever. We're talking about apps and the operating systems on our phones that effectively have access to all of our photos. And on top of this, they're using algorithms that are running in the background, whether we're aware of it or not, that are actively identifying the subject matter of our photos, creating more data. And it's not always clear who's looking at this data or what it's being used for. So when you mention policy, this is what comes to mind. It's a very, very important point. And because most we, we have a big research project with 3D total body imaging. And of course, with 3D total body imaging, I mean, it's, it's a classical example of, of, of sensitive data. It's semi-nude images, you know. Right. It's, it's, it's a big issue because each images are visually identified identifiable, they are sensitive, and of course, and as you mentioned, uh, some companies will will have access to it. I mean, the Googles and the Facebooks of, of, of this world. And uh, having said this, uh, we see this as a new paradigm in dermatolo dermatology imaging, which has to be addressed from, from a quite a significant group of uh, people with expertise on 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 various on various levels right and as i mentioned uh, before it's not just lawyers uh, it's ethicists it's regulatory aspects data manager health informatics policy makers and of course healthcare providers ourselves but most important consumers so there are many many different stakeholders right and there are a few guiding principles. And one is, of course, protect patient privacy, harmonize with ethical, legal, and regulatory guidelines, meet the consumer expectations. Some people speak about privacy by design. Yeah. So it is a complex issue. And of course, this will foster the, develop, the development of artificial intelligence. Yeah. And it's, it's something which I feel, and quite a few of my coworkers, we have a team working on this. We feel that this is very, very important. And look, guys, I make always a bit of a joke, and so don't take it too serious. But dermatology is in regards to dermatology imaging. Today, where radiology was 30 years ago, yeah? we, we are in some way, we have been falling behind the technology curve because we are so good with our eyes, you know? We are so good with our eyes. I look at you. I look at your face, I look at your arm, and we are making all these assumptions. We are very good with this. But at the end of the day, to be honest, if I look at your, at your images and I have the appropriate information, it will be as good as this. And then think for a moment how many areas we have worldwide. Dermatologists are clustering around the metropolitan areas. Yeah? You will not find too many dermatologists in rural places in the world. 
But at rural places, everyone will have mobile phones, right? So we, we have to, to think on a paradigm shift. And so what advice would you give to dermatologists on how to keep pace and evolve in their roles to remain relevant in this telehealth era? I can tell you, take leadership in this uh, with our societies, within our universities, with our, within our professional bodies. We have uh, basically to lead these developments. I can just tell you the Australian uh, College of Dermatology, which just recently have uh, um, basically worked on teledermatology guidelines. We have published them. We are now working on a, a blueprint for artificial intelligence, for the use of artificial intelligence in dermatology. We simply need to take leadership. Think of the moment the train, if the train is going, yeah? And the train is going. Do you want to be in the first? Do you want to, to drive the train or do you want to sit somewhere in the back and wait what is happening? It depends what we as a, as a society, as a group of dermatology wants. I certainly like to, to drive the train. Yeah. So now we would like to move to the questions about AI and a patient-centric data set of images and metadata for identifying melanomas. So how can the ugly duckling sign concept support new machine learning challenges? There's a lot happening in the field of AI in, in melanoma in the, last, in the last three, four years, right? And, and nearly every month a significant paper came out and I, I'm not sure, but I think I have shared with you this very exciting uh, paper about white, wild field imaging, which in other words would be regional images, and they're not speaking by dermoscopy, they have done conventional imaging of the back of people with uh, many pigmented spots, nevi and, and other lesions, and this was a group of the MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and I mean, the results, if you read in detail, they still need to be improved. But it's it's pretty an, a very exciting approach, and and then I was myself part of a, of a big uh, paper from um, driven by the Medical University of Vienna, which was about basically interaction between humans and and AI, and there is no doubt that uh, together we we can we can do we can do better. And how can AI be best used as a decision support for clinical diagnostics? And what is the current state of the art? The current state of the art is this: that basically, best of my knowledge, it's all on a on a on a research base, and not too much has been integrated in the in the daily work. Yeah. So this is basically there are very quite a few exciting research paper out. But uh, it's not integrated in the in the daily dermatology work with very few exceptions. But it has not been, to the best of my knowledge, not been approved yet by by our regulatory bodies like uh, EMEA in Europe or or uh, FDA in the States or the TGA in Australia. Having said this, there are a few conceptual ways how you can see. AI before the dermatologist. This is one approach. The other approach is basically uh, first the dermatologist and then AI. Yeah. And I, I think I have shared with you 
a slide which we have uh, published a, a, a couple of years ago in the, I think it was in the British Journal of, of Dermatology. And I'm very happy if you share them this also as part of, of this um, talk and, and put it in. There are pros and cons from both sides. The real, there, but there, let me share with you a few things which are critical. First of all, it's still a little bit more time consuming. Yeah? Because imagine I look at you, you have a spot on your, let's say on your phone. I look at it, I make a diagnosis and say it's fine. We do either it's all fine or we excited. But now imagine a moment now at the same time, maybe even in real time, time the, uh, the AI comes in. Yeah. Which at the end of the day will happen. It will not be before or after. It will be probably real time. But now the real time AI has a different opinion as I have clinically. So I will now, my brain will start rotating. You know what I mean? <laughs> Who is correct? I with my 30 years of experience or the AI? You know, so I'm getting nervous. It's, of course, if I think it's benign and AI says malignant, it's a huge medical legal burden on me if I say this is benign. And I may now have two thoughts. Oh, my goodness. I was a little bit nonchalant. The AI is definitely correct. Or I will start to smile and say, but this is a very specific variant, which I have seen 100 times of a benign lesion, which the AI has not been trained in. Right? But still, I will be under stress now. You know what I mean? Am I correct or is the AI correct? Yeah? Should I now err on the side of caution or not? And this takes mental energy for me, right? Which I wouldn't have had in the past. And now everything is, by the way, beautifully documented, yeah? Which is was also not done in the past. Other way around, the, the AI, uh, I mean, there are two ways. You know, the AI is malignant and I see benign. Or I say benign is AI is malignant. You know what I mean? And in both ways, it's, it's really a stress to overrule the AI. And I'm, guys, you will know these questions have been played out with automatic cast agnosium already, right? And I mean, you imagine, you know, left is a, is a, is a 18 year old uh, pregnant woman. Well, at least you see this is a young pregnant woman. On the right side is a, is now a, a, probably a very old person on a stick and you have to go right or left. You know what I mean? What should the automatic car does? You know what I mean? Who will be now hit? Yeah. I mean, these are huge ethics questions. So our questions will not never be so huge. Yeah. But still, will we need guidelines for this? Who will take the ultimate responsibility? At the moment, there's no doubt for me it will be with the dermatologist. Yeah, no question. Will also be in 10 years the dermatologist the ultimate decision maker? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how things will 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 develop here. Yeah, but it's certainly something which I'm very very interested from various aspects. Yeah. Yes, that's that brings us to the next question. Is it a common and or a realistic concern among, among dermatologists that AI might replace them in the long term when it comes to skin cancer screening? I will, it will certainly support us massively. Yeah, it will certainly support us massively, and it will be of big, big help 
for our patients, for the consumers, right? This is no question for me. So it will probably help us with our vision, a world without melanoma, a world without skin cancer. We will, it will help us in this context. Will it have an impact on the workflow of the dermatology? Yeah, 100%, yeah? But it will, it will, these things are changing gradually, you know? Guys, I mean, you're probably a little bit too young, but when I was at your age, our presentation were always codachromes, you know? And we had codachromes and we came with our Schlitten or however you call it in English, a cartridge. And, and there was always a way how we had to put in this slide. And then they started with digital. And in the first year at the American Academy, they had basically two computers and everything else was for cartridge. In the second year, it was 50-50. And in the third year, they didn't have a cartridge anymore. You know what I mean? So things are really changing. And I mean, I have no doubt that it will change, but of course we will always need dermatologists because we will need uh, someone who gives the patient the confidence, who then does the management, who supports the patient, who explains things to the patient, you know what I mean, or to the person. So there will always be a role, but again, there will be a shift, yeah? And not just in skin cancer. There is exciting work around artificial intelligence in inflammatory skin diseases. And again, this will be particularly helpful for people who don't have access to dermatologists, right? So I, I, I see a massive paradigm shift, yeah? But I see also that we, as a profession, we will be able to, to guide it, yeah? And to lead it if we take on this task. I remember those slide carousels, and we even used a dark room when I started my first research in actually paleobiogeography to measure microscopic fossils. When we switched to digital, it cut the process down from five days to two days. It was a paradigm shift. Yeah, no, no. Look, I mean, it's it's really it's really amazing how these things are changing, right? And and if you are a little bit younger, you can't even recall it anymore, right? I can't imagine it. <laughs> it's it's like in a, in a in a in a different world, yeah. Yeah. And for sure, AI will come in, but not really not just in skin cancer, in many other aspects, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. In many other aspects, it will guide us with treatment decisions and, and so on. You know, it will, uh, yes, treatment decisions, for example, then uh, when then the genetic comes in and when you have uh, certain uh, mutations which make you susceptible or not susceptible for certain drugs or put you on a higher risk for, for a specific uh, side effect. So this, but AI will, Will, will change will change this and it's changing this already. So you mentioned world without melanoma. How does this relate to your activities at the Australian Center of Excellence in Melanoma Imaging and Diagnosis, including precision prevention melanoma, holistic melanoma risk stratification, and personalized melanoma prevention? Yes, look, I mean, to be honest, we, we have here in Australia, in the Melanoma Institute of Australia, which is in Sydney, a big body who actually does fantastic research and world-class research, particularly in the field of, of dermato-oncology of treatment. And they have this slogan, 
uh, a, a world uh, with zero deaths of melanoma. Yeah, and uh, and when we put in the application for our center of excellence for melanoma imaging and diagnosing, we we came up with this concept of a world without melanoma, with the idea if we really image basically one day everyone, we will be able to get at least the cutaneous melanoma as early as possible and basically in, in a very, very early stage. It's still, I mean, this is a, is, is a, is a vision which will definitely take decades to, to be realized. In regards to, to our concept about precision prevention of, of melanoma, uh, we see a few, a few aspects here. Uh, the first aspect is obviously where that we see in that uh, genetic uh, sequencing will play a role. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, we have very well dis defined risk factor, clinical risk factors for melanoma, and these risk assessment tools are out there. Yeah, and they work actually quite well. But in addition to this, uh, there is this genetic component where we are now understand more and more, and there are different approaches. Here, one are the so-called melanoma genes, the other is the polygenic risk score, and the third is the rare variant gene mutations. And I think in the upcoming years, we will be really be able to refine much better the individual risk of a given person for melanoma based on the genetic sequencing. For example, you may look at someone who has no apparent risk for melanoma. You don't have many moles, you have darker eyes and darker hair, but then you have a mutation profile which tells us that you are at risk for melanoma and for pancreas cancer, for example, or for melanoma and breast cancer. But of course, the pancreas we will get when you are 50 plus, you know, and the melanoma probably when you're 40 plus. But still, if we know this, we will need to inform you. We will need to do pre-test and post-test genetic counseling. Quite a few issues around this, you know. Has this an impact on your life insurance? Has you an impact on your health insurance? <coughs> there are quite a few complex issues. But at the end of the day, this is a classical example for prevention for precision prevention in melanoma. The second aspect is now related to the imaging. Imagine now you are semi-naked, yeah, semi-nude, and we image you, and automatically the total body imaging will now tell us that you have 17 nevi, which are larger than seven millimeter and 20 larger than six millimeter and so on. Of course, you see this clinically, but now it's everything quantified, beautifully quantified. And then we know, oh, it will tell you, you have basically two moles in the whole body, just two, yeah? Or it will also tell you that 70% of your body surface is severely photo damaged. Or it will tell us that only your, your face and some parts of the arms, maybe just 15%, are moderately or slightly photo damaged, you know? So we speak from a deep imaging phenotype, which then at the end of the day will go together with the clinical information and with the genetic information and provide us a more holistic risk stratification. 
Having said this, we and quite a few people who are working with us in various groups in, in Australia, we are working on this uh, on this concept with different groups and different angles, right? So this is obviously what what we see as the 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 major aspects of precision prevention, and then of course comes in the aspect of the individual lesions, right? The individual lesions. Again, if you have just one lesion which is suspicious, it's easy to make the diagnosis. But imagine now you have uh, 30 lesions on your back. Should we excise 30? Yeah, this happens quite often. Yeah, or should we just image them and say these lesions which are not not changing, these are fine, and we just uh, excise those who are who are changing. So, and again, here then artificial intelligence will will kick in. So we are very excited about this uh, concept of uh, precision prevention for melanoma, but it's still quite a bit of work to be done. So how would it work with the genetic testing? Somebody gets a mouth swab, it gets processed, and then you develop a program for adherence to sun protective behavior, primary and secondary preventive behaviors? Look, I mean, this is, of course, there are quite a few questions around this, yeah? I just have to share one slide with you because this is one of my my favorite slides. This is one of my my favorite slides. For our listeners out there, Professor Sawyer is actually showing us a slide, and we have a link to it in the description of this episode below. You see then the back of two persons, right? Both have melanomas. Both uh, have melanomas. Actually, both have multiple melanoma under under forty. So both are now obviously high risk for melanoma. In one guy, even on the, on the photo from far, you see there are many, many moles, right? In the other, you see nothing, yeah? And I can tell you, based on conventional risk scores, this person, before she got the melanoma, she would be low risk, absolutely low, low risk. But then when you look at the genetic makeup, you know, and the, gene the genetic makeup you get uh, from swaps from, uh, swaps from the mouth, for example, yeah, with saliva, either swabs or, or spit. And then, of course, you have to send it in and you have uh, to do this genetic testing and there have to be a very formalized report and, and so on. But if you then know that you have a high polygenic risk or that this person has, yeah, she doesn't have familial melanoma genes, but have, she has a, a, a very high polygenic risk or then this explains it. So. What is now, if we know this, of course, she will be get advice in regard to primary prevention, not going into the sun. But she anyhow doesn't go too much into the sun because you will see also from the distance she, that she doesn't have really much pigmentation. But of course, we will then do what we call very close surveillance, right? These people have to be imaged probably once a year or once in six months. And they should everything what is suspicious to a mobile teledermoscopy, things like this. Yeah. So this is probably it will change. And then of course it may have impact on her sisters, on her brothers, you know, for her kids. Yeah. This is then called cascade testing. And what I was then uh, referring uh, to is um, is then this slide here, which you probably. I mean, I have to make it larger that you see these are two guys who are basically standing at the at the beach, you know, and one says, just heard I don't have the melanoma gene. 
so I can catch some rays worry-free, right? And and we have the same actually with the with the with the with smoking, yeah, with the lung cancer gene, which is by the way doesn't really this genetic background, but the gene that has not yet been even isolated, yeah. And and the other guy say, hey man, I got the gene. Figure if I'm doomed anyway, I may as well be bronzed, yeah. And this is obviously what then uh, people call genetic fatalism, yeah. And this is a, a huge research topic in its own right. It's very, very, very exciting. Um, breast cancer is leading the field, yeah. And dermatology will come into this sooner than later, yeah. So it's it's something where we are also quite quite keen on, as you can imagine. So specifically for our dermatologists out there. What exactly is genetic determinism and genetic fatalism? Genetic fatalism is the when the adherence to screening recommendation is suboptimal in individuals at high risk of melanoma because they think they're anyhow doomed. Yeah, it's because people believe that their fate is in the genes. So why bother? You know what I mean? Yeah, and. Uh, fatalistic beliefs about cancer associated with decreases in perceived personal control. Yeah, I mean the point is this: I'm also a fatalist. Yeah, I I understand this actually quite well. Yeah, because in my deep inside myself, I have also quite quite a bit of fatalistic behaviors. Right, so I can understand this. Yeah, and then of course there are people who are completely the contrary. Right, which are then uh, you know, this kind of issue about self-fulfilling prophecy and all these sort of things, right? Which is a completely different uh, topic, yeah? And it's just coming back to genetic fatalism, education, genetic testing and counseling has been shown to reduce fatalism and increase cancer screening adherence. At least it has been shown in other cancers, not yet for melanoma. But one of our research streams is in to, to show that this is the same as two of the melanoma. And now we would like to talk about some of your recent publications in the JDV related to melanoma diagnostics. What interventions could reduce overcalling and undercalling of melanoma and what do we know about their impact to date? Yes, this is actually a very, very uh, complex topic, right? Because... Um, there was a recent New England uh, Journal of Medicine publication in, in January, which steered the pot massively. Yeah? And uh, while a few things in this publication are definitely correct, and I hear what the authors are saying, a few are probably um, also not correct. Yeah? And basically, the major issue is this, that uh, there is a bit of a tendency for mostly for medical legal reasons to over biopsy moles nearby and also for medical legal reasons from pathologists to overcall lesions as in cytomelanoma or as early melanoma just to err on the side of, of, of caution yeah and this is something which is a very big a very big issue, and uh, yes, and there are 
quite a few groups in Australia who are working on this, but it's also quite controversial because many doctors and many and many patients, consumers quite rightly say, what's the problem? If in doubt, cut it out, right? And we have the so-called, uh, we have some of our melanoma survivors, they have 20, 30, 40 scars on the back, yeah? And they had one or two melanomas. And, but then they are basically, everything is excised. So one can assume that a lot of over, over calling is, uh, is, is happening. And one of the theoretical interventions, I was part of a recent GADV paper from a Sydney group, is what they say that basically second opinion in dermatopathology by expert dermatopathologists uh, would, would help to reduce this kind of, of overcalling to a certain percentage. Yeah? But again, this is a very theoretical work and it's very complex to to live this in the, in the real world. Another aspect is, which is not the case in Europe, but particularly in the East Coast in America, many dermatologists are basically also doing the pathology reporting themselves, who are labs with them, whom they are affiliated, where they have stakes in it, yeah? And basically, they think it's suspicious clinically, and of course, they also think that it's suspicious histologically. I mean, I'm making up things. But you might know that 100 or 150 years ago, the surgeon, in general surgery, the surgeon were also doing the pathology yeah, themselves. But then, since 150 years, at the time of Birkhoff, this is completely separated. A surgeon is not allowed, if it cuts out a tumor, to even start cutting it and looking and making some, yeah? He cuts it out and hands it to an independent pathologist who basically does an independent assessment, which is absolutely right and correct. And it happens in, in most of the world in dermatology also, but not, not on the East Coast in the States, which is probably not a problem for, for Europeans. But still just to tell you that it's, it's a, it's a quite a complex issue. Why is the East Coast of the United States different in this regard? It's a very historical thing that uh, traditionally dermatopathology was in the hand of dermatologists. And actually my scientific background is dermatopathology. Before I came to Australia, I was basically working in Graz uh, 23 years as a dermatopathologist and I'm also European uh, board-certified dermatopathologist. Having said this, that since I'm in Australia, since 2007, I'm not allowed to read slides because this is completely in the hands of pathologists. Yeah? There's a complete separation. The pathologists are reading uh, brain and, and, and breast and also skin, and the dermatologists are providing the excision and the information, and then there's a lot of clinical pathologic correlation. And in, in particularly in the East Coast, it was, was um, standard that many dermatologists were also dermatopathologists and did their own, their own reading. Yeah. So now let's move to Europe then. Uh, what is the impact of dermoscopy on melanoma detection in practice of dermatologists in Europe? Look, I mean, I'm obviously severely conflicted, right? Because I was part of the initial group of people who 
who basically introduced dermatoscopy, dermoscopy, incident life microscopy, surface microscopy, or whatever you call it, into, into, into dermatology. And getting older, I, I of course still believe that dermoscopy is absolutely crucial, but I see of course the point if you are a very, very good clinician, yeah, in many cases, you don't need dermoscopy. Having said this, I personally use it daily. And if I use it, I don't just use it for the suspicious lesions. I lose it for, for everything just to constantly train my eye. And I, I still think that dermoscopy improves the diagnostic accuracy about 10 to 15%. Yeah. So there is no, no doubt about this. And they have been done numerous studies and, and, Dermoscopy, dermatoscopy is nowadays an integral part of the dermatological um, examination. People say it's the stethoscope of the dermatologist. And having said this, uh, a lot of work has been done in the recent years also on inflammatory skin diseases. So there are a few examples, for example, like in Planus, which is a very specific uh, inflammatory skin disease, disease but you have a very, very characteristic demoscopic picture. Professor Sawyer, it's been wonderful catching up with you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Yes, thank you, and goodbye, and have a good day. We would like to thank Professor Sawyer for speaking with us today, and we would like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Some of the research discussed today can be found in the JADV. Though you can find free access and open access articles, EEDV members benefit greatly by having access to all articles and content. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts to make sure you get the newest episodes delivered right to you. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.